Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. Most of the podcasts you'll find here are recorded in our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises, but occasionally something or someone else will be featured. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not the thump you with it kind of ones. We believe in the world-changing power of the love of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. We're also always trying to integrate all this culturally applicable truth in real ways that reach our emotions and intellects, as well as our spirits. We're starting 2020 with a seven-part series called The Holiness of Health. The truth about our emotional and mental health doesn't always get centre stage in church, and while this is all stuff that we talk about quite a lot at Bread, we wanted to kick off the new decade with a proper, in-depth look at this stuff. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is Hannah. Um, Having said all of that, uh, this is one that I'm actually recording from home. The first chapter um, from this series that we're doing, um, which covers a big chunk of the material actually and is somewhat foundational to what follows, didn't record when um, I spoke about it in church. So here we are. This whole series is based on the uh, teaching and the writing of a man named Pete Scazzaro and his book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, or he's got another one called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And the premise is basically that for the vast majority of church history, and for most of us, the vast majority of our church experiences, will have been around an emphasis on certain aspects of ourselves, our spiritual self, obviously, and possibly our intellectual health, our uh, physical health maybe has been addressed in church, but what we haven't seen addressed um, and uh, addressed in a way that's balanced with the rest of it is emotional health. And so the claim goes, if we are prioritising any aspect of our whole selves at the expense of others being ignored, then it is the whole self that suffers. And we really do think he's got a very important point here. Um, If you're depressed, meditating on Bible verses about hope can be very important and part of mindfully addressing some of the neurological and chemical imbalances even. But more often than not, um, other things need addressing too. If you're stuck in patterns of addiction, struggling with issues of being faithful in marriage, trust in friendship, the answer isn't always as simple as pray more, study scripture better, Um, because when we elevate these aspects of health and deny others, we run the risk of systemically ignoring or failing to address the root causes of what is really going on in us. And we, um, along with Schizero, passionately believe that God is very interested in the roots, in the reality of what's happening underneath, in the truth. I think these old models are in part what we are generationally turning our back on when we turn our back on church. I think we're seeing this across the Western world, actually, and I think we're also seeing it in politics. We put a very, very high value um, on authenticity. Generation Z and millennials are said to value authenticity, in fact, above all else um, when it looks to who, when they're looking for who to follow. Um, the idea that you need to be real about what's going on deep down, being true to yourself, not putting on a show above all else, which is quite a thing, isn't it? When you look at the whole phenomenon of influencers, forget the content, the style or the wisdom, it's the realness that we're really looking for. And I say we, I am in fact an old lady generation Xer, 
Um, but in this regard, I am actually very much one of the kids. I spent a large part of my search that led me back to church um, in my early 20s or mid-20s looking for something that did feel authentic, that it felt real, um, that felt healthy. I didn't want any more preaching truth but without kindness. I didn't want any more quoting Bible verses at me um, but not answering my actual question. I didn't want any more platitudes or a, just a general sense that people who were supposed to be in charge didn't have meaningful answers or meaningful experiences or healthy responses. I didn't want to follow those people. I was looking for something that looked more rounded. And this took me to quite a lot of churches in London um, when I eventually found St Mary's. Among the other things that Ed and I feel indebted to St Mary's for, which is the church from where we hail in London, is to John, who is the guy that uh, led there, um, has led there for 20 years actually, this month. And he's most certainly not without fault or failing, but he never pretended to be anything that he wasn't. He showed us, and a number of people that, um, that went through the training process at St Mary's, what it really is to um, lead with a clear sense of your authority, a clear sense of your gifting, but doing that from a place of being real about your brokenness. And I actually think it's an incredibly unusual experience to have had within church. Because, um, of course, it's brokenness that every single one of us mere members of humanity have. The iceberg is Schizera's visceral representation of this, which unfortunately I can't show you on a podcast, but we all know what an iceberg look, look, looks like. It has a certain amount above the waterline and then usually a lot, lot more below the waterline. And the thing with our old models of discipleship is that they're not addressing anything that's below the surface. Or if they are, it's called sin. And it's very simple. Uh, it's the stuff that God hates. And um, the thing is with sin... Um, it's actually quite a complicated business. We try not to use the word as often as we possibly can. Not remotely because we don't believe it's a problem, uh, not that we think that it's just a matter of personal judgment or that we don't need to worry about it because it's covered. We don't use the word partly because um, it's a word that I think is associated with a lot of trauma to a lot of people, um, but also because I think these old understandings that we're kind of talking about here don't allow really for how nuanced and complicated the effects of living in a fallen, broken world really is. Some of the ways in which we screw up um, are the results of, um, you know, deliberate, disobedient, destructive choices. Some of the ways in which we screw up are the results of things that we have no conscious awareness of. Um, things that we believe about ourselves, things um, that we believe about how trustworthy or untrustworthy other people are, things that we believe about how lovable we are, this kind of messaging that we have wired into our very minds and souls about the safety or lack thereof in human love that we've received. Um, if it's sin that has driven our behaviour from below the surface of the water, um, then that's kind of been taught to us as a binary thing. And the issue is for us is that we don't think that a lot of what is going down there, on down there beneath the water, is very black or white at all. I'll come back to that at the end. What is very exciting to us about this new series is examining all of the ways in which the science on this, on what compels our behaviour and our emotions, and the biblical narrative on emotional health match up. The science says that emotions are biochemical reactions, that they are objectively measurable through physical cues such as blood flow, heart rate, facial expression, body language, 
and activity in the amygdala and the prefrontal cortices. And that the core emotions are common to all cultures, that they are coded into our DNA, and that we're born with an innate ability to express the full range perfectly. In fact, there's probably quite a lot of research that I won't go into about how we're already affected by the external realities of our world before we're even born. There's a lot of um, in utero research being done currently, but let's just leave that aside for a second. But scientifically speaking, before our parents and our culture screw us up, we are born with the perfect ability to perfectly feel it all. Psychologists would argue about the exact labels, but um, I'm going to go with the most widely accepted list of the universal human emotions. that are joy, surprise, anger, disgust, fear and sadness. Obviously there are a much more detailed range within all these things, but these are the sort of the, the subcategory headings that are widely given to them. And this matches entirely the godly created perfect humanity we read about on the pages of the Bible, that we're made in his image, before our corruption, to feel it all perfectly in perfect love of self, in perfect love of other, and of our God. And then, science and theology agree, this perfect image is marred by the brokenness. This is what the early account of Genesis was really all about. Our solution to the brokenness is possibly where we diverge, but maybe less than you'd think. Jesus was perfectly human. Hebrews 4.15 says he was in every way that we are, except without sin. He grew up in a human body, with a human brain and a human heart, into a human man. And he shows us in every way what it looks like to be, a health, to be healthy, as he expressed unashamed, unembarrassed, unrestrained emotion. He doesn't repress or project them onto others. Out of him pours the full range. He wept, he got angry, he's astonished, he longs, he suffers, he greatly rejoices. I think our issue is that we don't really see those things in him as human. We elevate his experience of them to godly things, godly emotions, godly responses, rather than seeing the actual humanity in them. Or to come at it another way, I think that most of us have no issue seeing the positive ones as godly ones. And this is where the old overemphasis on spiritual health maybe affects us more than we realise. I think we have an inherent bent to think that something is wrong with us, is ungodly or is broken when we feel bad or sad or mad. That if we have just more faith or a better perspective, a stronger character, that we would never feel these things. Or if God favoured us, was better at answering our prayers, looked after us a little better, we could avoid these feelings altogether. This is where we've got it very wrong. Because the truth is, negative emotions are every bit as vital to our humanity as the positive ones are. They're not always things that should be fixed, relieved, corrected. We can be experiencing holy emotion when we're sad or disgusted, even angry. As counterintuitive as it seems, the darkest, most painful emotions can be exactly the most godly responses. Because... In very simple terms, he made us to respond to things as they actually are. We should be distressed by distressing things, just as much as we should delight in the glorious things. Love, perfect love, requires the full range. None of our emotions can be ignored and numbed when we love wholly, just like we're created to.
Not that every feeling that we feel is right, of course. We can feel things that have nothing to do with holiness. We can indulge our feelings and we can unload them onto others unfairly. And of course, we can be completely unaware of what we're actually feeling at all or have no ability to express them. Uh, we learn very, very early on to avoid all feelings that make our caregivers uncomfortable. This, again, is universal. We observe in completely unconscious ways. A lot of this is totally precognition because in this perfectly created desire to connect with our caregivers, what we most naturally want to avoid is any sense that we're making them uncomfortable. Ed and I are not trained therapists, but we do uh, meet with couples reasonably often who are going through some kind of crisis. And we very much um, base our approach to relationships on a book called Hold Me Tight by Dr. Sue Johnson. This book introduced us to the idea that all relationships have a pursuer and an avoider. It doesn't necessarily mean that the pursuer has always been the kind of person that would, you know, go after emotional connection and that has always been motivated by that in relationships with other people. Um, but it does uh, tend to happen, even if you start out as an avoider, if your partner is more avoidant than you. So the idea is one person chases for emotional connection and another person avoids emotional connection. For Ed and I, this was reasonably true. <clears throat> um, we were pretty extremes, uh, examples of both things. I grew up in a family of uh, five girls, and we, just to understate the reality, certainly uh, grew up expressing ourselves. We would voice it when someone did something to upset us. We would voice it, whatever it was. Um, and we kind of view us, viewed ourselves as having the right to do that. Ed grew up, um, one of two boys, the product of an education system that probably didn't emphasise uh, emotional expression, um, to put it very, very mildly. Um, and though we had many, many levels of connection in our relationship, this was something quite soon on, before we were married, that came to the fore, that, that if something was wrong, if we perceived either of us that there was a, a sort of rupture between us, something going on between us, and um, it touched on any level of uncomfortable feeling, Ed would shut down and I would, uh, for want of a better word, flare up. Um, and more, the more I flared up, the more he shut down. Uh, the early years of our marriage were colourful, particularly, I might add, when he finally did get in touch with his anger. Um, but, you know, this is all stuff that we've spent, fortunately, close to a decade and a half working on together. But they are two sides of an emotionally broken coin. Neither one is necessarily better than the other, but they all have their origins in the depths of our experiences and the intricate web of our neural pathways deep, deep down below the water surface, to go back to that iceberg analogy. Jesus shows us something radically different in perfect, healthy, human, emotional expression. So if we go back to these six core emotions, Obviously, we could take a much deeper dive into any of the six things and find some profound things in Jesus' expression of them, but it was anger that I really wanted to look at. Because of all the emotions, I think anger is the most complicated and the most potently misunderstood. And yet it's a portal. If we can understand properly what's godly about anger, we can get a huge insight into what it is that we're really raging against deep, deep down there.
all those feelings down there in the dark. And maybe we can realise that actually our instinct to rage, it isn't that ungodly after all. We know that obviously a lot of anger isn't holy. We know that untamed anger destroys. Again, this is scientific and theological. All kinds of research shows that uncontrolled anger destroys our bodies, gives us headaches, blood pressure issues, heart attacks, even links to cancer, some studies suggest. It destroys our wisdom. You can see any number of verses in the book of Proverbs, but also have you just heard the things that come out of your mouth when you're angry? Cortisol flowing through your blood. It destroys our very view of reality. It destroys our will. It destroys our ability to make good choices. In its pure form, it is godly. But can you honestly tell me the last time you expressed anger and thought, oh, check me feeling his pleasure having a made in the image of God moment over here. I can give you some real examples from, of anger from our household. Uh, these were from the week that I gave the talk, but yeah, I do have some new ones. Um, it was the Tuesday morning of, of that week and um, I was running late for something that was a treat and that I had promised myself I wouldn't be late to. It was my sort of self-care moment, if you will. Um, I had very simply left the house too late and I had planned to make up the time on the sneaky shortcut routes of the windy Los Feliz streets, uh, but no, the ever-present UPS man was parked, as he does, ignoring all sides of the road, um, and just parked his truck in the middle of his in the middle of the street, and he'd got out and he, without even turning his engine off, um, and he was nowhere to be seen. And I, without even stopping to consider the fact that a new mum friend with her kindergartner were right next to me, uh, wound down my window and yelled, will you please come and move your truck? Yeah, I was that woman. Uh, it was not gracious, it was not kind, it was something that if I heard someone else do, I would not think kind things about. Um, Ed, the day after that, uh, you can imagine uh, chasing for 45 minutes our dog round the floodlit full area of a baseball field in Griffith Park. Um, our dog is very, very good at running now and uh, not very, very good at doing what he's told. And then it took a really, really, really long time to catch him. And by the end, Ed was quite loud and a little bit sweary and very angry. I'm going to return to these examples in a minute when I attempt to show you how godly they both are. No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, but first, let's um, take a sweeping look at Jesus' anger on the pages of the Gospel. Probably the, the most well-known um, incident that of Jesus' anger is the temple clearing scene. It's one that's included in all of the Gospels, but I'm going to use John's account. John 2.14 In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. I think the profound detail here that's so often overlooked when we sort of look at this idea of righteous anger, the righteous anger of Jesus Christ, is that worshipping in the temple required the things that these stalls sold. I don't think Jesus is actually angry here about the exploitation of, of people's needs. The animals and the silver, they were sacrificed according to the law. It was God's law. The important detail here is that the location of the stalls within the temple is the outer court. 
So that's the exact and only area where Gentiles were able to go. Jesus is angry because by setting up these stores there, the Jewish rulers were making it impossible for anyone other than the Jewish people to pray, to atone for their sins, or to approach God at all. As God's chosen people, the Jewish people are supposed to be making a way for the whole new thing that Jesus is bringing, and no one is listening. His angry retort to Peter in Matthew 16 is over a similar offence. He says, get behind me, Satan. It's not mild manners from Jesus here, is it? Poor old Peter, he's always the first to speak up and get the brunt of it on behalf of the rest of the disciples. But he's striking a chord with the exact same crime of the Pharisees. The exact thing, actually, at the heart of all of Jesus' human-directed anger recorded in the Gospels. Jesus has just revealed to his disciples for the first time what the grand plan is, that contrary to their expectations of him as their Messiah, he's not ushering in an earthly kingdom, conquering everyone. He's not going to beat down the powers of the world with a military victory and take charge. He's bringing a whole new kind of kingdom. It's really different to the one they're expecting. And he's just told them that he's have to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and then be raised to life. And Peter rebuked him, saying, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus' humanity here is so revealing. It's like, I can't fight you on this one as well. You've got to understand now. I'm telling you, I've just heard it from my father. I've just told you I've got to rise from the dead. I'm going to beat death. I've just told you I'm breaking down the barriers. This is phenomenally good news, and even you are not listening. And then there's more, there's much more. I could go through a number of examples, um, certainly focused on the seven, whereas in, in Matthew 23, when he really goes for it on the teachers of the law, um, the sort of woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, uh, you travel over London Sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much of a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guys, blind fools. Snakes, brood of vipers, he's pretty angry at them. And I'm labouring this point because I want us to be very clear. Every time Jesus gets angry with another person in the Bible, it is directedness at the brokenness within his own house. It was without exception aimed at the people who God had chosen to show the world what he looked like, who had and were continuing to refuse to do that. It was only aimed at the people who were not getting on board with the world-changing, epoch-changing thing that he was here to do. So just as a little side note, if you're scared that Jesus is ever angry with you and you haven't done that thing, um, which by the way you haven't done, then you don't need to be scared. Because Jesus did it. He died, he rose again, he beat death, he conquered it all, he ended the divide, he ended the need for chosenness because he chose everyone, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Do you know what Jesus' anger isn't? It's not aimed at Israel's enemies. It's not aimed at political or military overlords, undeniably brutal and unjust in those days. It's not aimed at the debased morality in the entire gentle region at the time, debased morality beyond our 20th century wildest dreams, actually. It's not aimed at slave masters or prostitutes or criminals. He had a confrontation with the devil himself and he didn't respond angrily. It's not aimed at Israel sinners either. He takes the side of the sinner 
time and time again. Jesus was coming to restore the icon, the crack, the brokenness and its effects before a perfect God, for the whole of humanity, where we all, as God's image bearers, made for oneness in relationship, oneness with God, with the garden and with self, had been broken, Jesus was coming to put us back together, to bring about a new thing, where temples and priests and sacrifices and law was all going to be fulfilled. There is uh, another moment of Jesus' anger that's not aimed at a person um, in John 11, um, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. We looked at this passage a few months ago, um, but when it says, everyone's favourite memory verse from childhood, 11, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. We've, uh, we've been using the wrong word. It gives us a little taste of the uh, emotionally centeredness of our English-speaking forefathers, because this word doesn't mean wept. In the classical Greek, this word denotes the snort of a war horse. It describes deep, deep anger. It's an outburst of rage and pain from the deepest level of his being. This story is told as a prophetic sign of what he's about to do. Lazarus's empty tomb foreshadowing his own. The passage before has made it clear that God has told him he's going to raise Lazarus. But Jesus doesn't rush to this sort of da-da moment of the resurrection. He stops. He sees the pain of his, of his friends. He sees all the pain that death causes and he rages about it. The way that Jesus does it, all death, all outworking of death, all pain, all sickness, all poverty, all broken relationship, all heartbreak, abuse, all of the ways in which we're living in a broken human condition that we were never ever intended to experience. He rages because he loves us and this world does not work like it was supposed to. Love cannot exist in this world without anger. It is the right response to the thing we love being threatened. In fact, anger is love's natural movement to defend from a threat. And while I'm very sure we can all admit to ourselves that most of our anger isn't motivated by the purity of Jesus' anger here, I think these perfect moments of godly anger show us something very, very important about our own. Many psychologists want to distinguish it from all the other primary emotions we looked at earlier, because even when anger seems like a pure, instantaneous, knee-jerk reaction to a provocation, there's almost always some other feeling that gave rise to it, that we're trying to hide from or numb. In our brokenness, anger is used to camouflage or control. Watch the way, almost universally, we respond when someone cuts us off on a freeway. The speed at which we travel from intense fear that, you know, ourselves or our passengers or someone near us is going to get really hurt really badly. Intense fear to intense anger, holding down your hands, yelling on the horn, yelling out the window, other things coming out of your mouth. It happens at such breathtaking speed that we barely even know it happens. All we're aware of is the anger, but actually what we're doing is masking the fear. We do it with surprise. We do it with embarrassment and shame too. Think about the last time you tripped over. Think about the last time you publicly made a mistake or got something wrong in front of some people you didn't want to, or just felt embarrassed in any way. Most of us go through some sort of blame and anger dance, either internally or externally, rather than just sit with the pure truth of, that was really, really embarrassing. 
I see it with my kids all the time. Embarrassment, embarrassment is a very difficult feeling to hold. We do it with sadness. Anger has a whole special place in the psychology of grief. We always tell people who are grieving uh, to expect the anger phase of DABDA. If you know DABDA, it's the denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance phases that sort of um, very commonly experienced in grief when we've lost someone. And actually when we've lost something we care about as well. We usually say that um, the anger phase, is, it'll be something that you'll ping pong back and forth to and from because of all the horrible feelings that rightly get stirred up when we lose someone or something. Of all the feelings that get mixed up in grief, anger is the one that we're most comfortable with. This internal dynamic is the same with a whole host of emotions because they can be effectively masked, squelched or preempted through the emergence of secondary anger. Anger is what emerges, but what we must learn to do if we're seeking help is to ask ourselves, what is really down there? I read a Psychology Today article by an anger management professor and clinician called Liam Seltzer, and he says, with very few exceptions, the angry people I've worked with have suffered from significant self-image deficits. Many have been quite successful in their careers, but far less so in their relationships where anger triggers abound. People we love make us the most angry because they can access our core pains faster than anyone else. Regardless of their professional achievements, however, almost all of them have been afflicted by an I'm not good enough programme, and some with an additional I'm a fraud script as well. Looking at what actually happens in the brain when we explode with anger is that chemically what is released um, are hormonal secretions in the brain that are actually analgesics. They're pain relief. In effect, whether individuals are confronted with physical or psychological pain, or the threat of such pain, anger causes the brain to respond with chemicals expressly designed to numb the pain. Anger is actually a balm to our core hurts, whatever they may be. Fear of being ignored, unimportant, accused, guilty, untrustworthy, devalued, rejected, powerless, unlovable. So to go back to me in the car yelling and honking at the UPS guy on Tuesday in front of my new friend, uh, which is something I feel quite ashamed about, I uh, do know what I was feeling. I was feeling disappointment that my resolve not to be late to this appointment, my new resolve, it being New Year, I'm going to stop being late and stop rushing everywhere, that it, it, my resolve hadn't caused me to leave the house sooner, to just not write that one last email or do that last little job. But actually, below the disappointment was sadness. I have been increasingly aware, as I slowed down over Christmas particularly, that I'm quite sad that I haven't learned to apply better boundaries in my life between the two jobs that I do from home, um, time with my family and time for myself. It was sadness I was really feeling that morning. And I think probably quite obviously the real feeling that Ed was feeling underneath the public yelling in Griffith Park the other day um, was fear. The puppy had escaped his leash and he's too dumb to know anything about roads. And there was a very, very big one, a very, very busy one, uh, really close. Anger fends off the pain of these unbearable feelings, the ones that linger deep, deep down there beneath the surface. Of course, these outbursts are marred by the brokenness of our fallen world and the brokenness of our humanity. But what they do is echo, they resonate somehow 
with the godly human anger that we do see modelled by Jesus. Anger is trying to cancel out whoever or whatever is making us feel unworthy and unlovable. Anger is our way of objecting to the thing that is threatening love and life and wholeness, threatening our core belief that we're lovable and accepted. When we look at it this way, anger is not as ungodly as it might seem. In our very DNA as his creation is a God-given belief that we should not be made to feel unlovable. And we've learnt to prevent this feeling at all costs. I think if we were to be in touch with any sense of righteous anger, um, it would be something like, you know, how you feel when you watch a movie about injustice. Um, or, you know, just see some intense level of human deprivation around you. It can make us feel really angry. And I think it's getting in touch with that level of feeling about ourselves. It's all right to feel angry when we're made to feel unlovable. But it is, of course, what we do with that that matters. Acknowledging what it is we're angry about is the goal. But, of course, expressing anger isn't, because it very, very often is damaging to others and to ourselves. The very, very good news is that, as well as you know how great therapy can be, in helping us uh, explore what is down there in our feelings underneath the surface. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit. And um, this is the stuff that he loves to do. I would massively encourage you to come to a service and come up for prayer at the end of that because this is, this is the essence of what we're doing when we're asking for emotional healing every week. It's the stuff that he absolutely loves to get his hands on. If we can have the courage to open ourselves to that, um, this is his work. There's a very simple difference between us and Jesus. It's not that he was God, because he was also fully human. The difference was that he knew himself to be fully loved by his Father in heaven. And this is what the Spirit does. We leak love through the holes made by the imperfect love we've received on earth. Knowing that we're compassionately and without exception loved is the first step to taking the courage to go down below. Sometimes this stuff can be healed. I've seen it, I've experienced it in a moment. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. I can't necessarily completely explain to you why that is, but I do know that the most emotionally and spiritually healthy people I know are the ones that uh, know they're on a journey don't necessarily completely expect to reach a destination in, their, in this lifetime, um, but commit to a spiritual openness to emotional health, inviting the spirit into this stuff as often as they can, as regularly as they can, as deeply as they can. So uh, to end there, um, I hope that you can join us at a service sometime. We'd love to pray with you afterwards. Um, there's more of this stuff coming up in the next few weeks, so I hope you enjoy it. All the talks from our Sunday services are written with an aim to point people towards and help them open themselves to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't think he's just a bit part or an optional extra in our Sunday services. Following his lead is kind of the whole point. So at the end of each service, we invite everyone to receive prayer. 
There's no magic in the way that we pray for people. We've just found that it's the easiest and most natural way to open ourselves. And that when we do that, he often meets us in the most wonderfully transformative ways. If you're able to join us at a service, we'd always encourage you to give this a go, as out of your comfort zone as it may be. Do drop us a line at hello at bread.church if you'd like to talk about any of this more. Thanks for listening.